Hello, everybody. Welcome. As we continue on in our study now of the Old Testament, we're in Genesis chapter 14 tonight. We're working through a chapter at a time. We've made great progress. We did the New Testament. We completed that in five years. And now we're in the Old Testament, so we got a 15-year run on this, and we're 14 weeks in. So all is well, and uh, Genesis will take a year. So this is that many chapters, all right? Well, that's good. And then the, the, the first five books will take us quite a while. After that, we'll make some progress, but it's good. Psalms, I'm not sure how we're going to do Psalms yet. I was looking at Psalms. Some of them are really short, so... They're real short, we might combine a few, but there's 150 psalms, so that's three years worth. <laughs> we'll see. That's okay. Right, we've got nothing but time till Jesus comes back. That's what I always say, right? So, we're in Genesis 14. Now, um, we're, remember the first 11 chapters of Genesis sort of cover four main events. And we looked at those, you know, it, it's the creation and the fall, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the flood, and then Tower of Babel, uh, dispersion and stuff. So there's four main events happening in there. And then these next chapters, beginning in chapter 12 and moving forward, kind of cover four, four of the main guys in, in history. So we're going to look at Abraham, and, and which is, was also Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So um, if you're trying to remember, I like to sort of, um, some of the ways that I remember Bible is thinking about it like that, what was going on in, in, these, in these things. So if you think about Genesis and you can remember those two sets of information, when you're thinking about a verse that might have come at Genesis, you can kind of figure out where you ought to be looking. Who did it involve? If it's, if it's Abraham, it's going to be in Genesis 12 through whenever, and then if it's, you know, if it's Isaac, he's going to have a chunk. And if it's Jacob, he'll have a chunk. Joseph has a chunk. First stories have a chunk. So you start thinking about it that way. Um, it just kind of helps in finding some uh, you know, information in the Bible as we go through it. You'll, you'll have that information sort of stored up there. And you can, uh, then you can find it um, in the process. You, is it you know, context? You start thinking about what was going on. Who would have said that? And you can begin to find things fairly simply. So... Right now we're looking at the life of Abram. We, we saw, you know, um, that Abram's a, a man of faith. Uh, he's walking the life of faith. He's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We've already seen him, you know, sort of fail um, and kind of half do what he's supposed to do. And there's been consequences for that already. And um, at this point in time, uh, Abram and Lot, remember in our last chapter, they had split um, company because they were too big to be together any longer and their herdsmen rather than working things out were quarreling and so Abram had said Lot you know take your pick you go one way I'll go the other and Lot looked towards Sodom and thought that looked pretty cool and he chose that area and uh, sort of had the better watering grounds and everything looked better that way so he's drawn to what he sees Abram says fine he goes the other way and remember the big thing I told you about Lot. Lot in a lot of ways you're gonna see Lot as and Lot wasn't a, a terrible person by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he often goes by um, what he sees instead of walking by faith. His, he doesn't have his life dialed in with God, referenced to the fact that he has tents but no altars, and Abram has both. And um, he, makes, uh, he often chooses the wrong direction, and the, you know, probably corrupted in, in Egypt by the things that were available there, 
when he sees and sees Sodom, he's drawn to Sodom. And, and uh, by the time we get into Genesis chapter 14, he's not any longer in the plains outside Sodom. He's actually moved into the city. And, uh, and so though that was his choice, and that's where he's at in the process. Uh, but Abram is, uh, you know, still doing what he's supposed to do. And, and um, you know, he's listening to the Lord, and he's taking care of his thing and following directions the best he can and moving along in the process. But uh, what we're going to see that happens in this chapter is we're going to see Abram, Abraham, who uh, so far has been, you know, shown as a man of faith. Um, in Genesis 14, he's going to be shown as a warrior and a worshiper. And uh, I think that's kind of interesting to add to the mix. So let's read through it. We'll talk about it briefly on the other end of our reading, and we'll go from there. Lots of uh, interesting names in this chapter, and uh, if you don't like my pronunciation, that is completely fine. I won't hold that against you. <laughs> you can pronounce them however you want. Um, but you will see me work through this list. But um, watch what happens now in Genesis 14. I'll be reading out of the NIV. Whatever translation you're using is fine. I think the notes are NIV as well. Here we go. At this time... I'm going to put my glasses on. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Ariok, king of Elisar. Kedorlaomer, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedorlaomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaites in Ashtoreth Karname, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh Kiriathame, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eskol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 tra trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram turned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, 
The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and am taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Blessed be the word of the Lord. All right. So, pretty interesting chapter of uh, things that are happening. And um, like I said, the, we get to see Abram here in these first verses um, a, a, in, in sort of the kind of unexpected, I think, character of a warrior. So the, the five city-states in the plain of Jordan had been subject for 12 years to the kings of the four eastern states, and they finally decided to revolt against them. And, and uh, they rebelled against them. The, normally what that means is they quit paying them off. Um, that's what would happen. And so these five kings finally decided they were tired of paying off the four kings. And the, the big shot of the four kings was that guy, you know, Ned Leomer, Kedo. Uh, well, you know, I've said his name like 15 times. But Kurdor uh, Leomer. Kurdor Leomer. So um, they rebel against him. And uh, I guess they think that they don't need to keep playing, paying these tributes and everything. And so the four kings, then led by that guy, they come and invade the plain of Jordan to bring the five kings back into subjection. And, um, and uh, you know, by the way that we view sort of world things now, it's a pretty minor skirmish. But um, in that day, this was a, sort of a major international conflict, nine kings and kingdoms involved in this thing. And you would think that five kings ought to be able to handle four kings, especially when you consider the five kings have um, home field advantage, if you would. They're, it's their planes, right? They should know their turf. But the, uh, the armies of these cities were, were just soundly defeated, defeated by the invading kings. Um, because apparently the five kings, they didn't even know their own land. They actually got trapped in their own tar pits, um, which you would think if they were a little better militarily, they would have used to their advantage instead of allowing themselves to be trapped in their own tar pits. Some of their guys were lost in the tar pits, and every, the ones that were left um, fled for the hills. So much for the battle. Uh, and the people that are in the cities are taken captive by the four kings along with all the food everything that's there the kings go in they take everything people and everything they empty these cities and they take them all with them and um, they end up scooping up Lot and his family and his stuff as well this all goes out with the kings because Lot by this time like I said had left the plains and was actually living in Sodom he had moved all the way into the city, the, the, you know, the, the temptations of the city, the life in the city, whatever, had drawn him in, um, and, and he had chosen quite a different life than Abram had. And, uh, you know, as I said, you know, Abram, what we know about Abram, you know, he, he lived in tents, but he, he had an altar. Remember I said that those altars they constructed um, reminded them of worship and, and of the Lord. 
And that's why they were there. And, and you know, it, it kept them walking for him and looking to him for insight and direction. You know, Abram lived by faith, not by sight. And I've already said to you that Lot was the exact opposite. And sort of is a picture of, uh, and it will be a continuing picture of, of what, you know, living life apart from the Lord looks like, even though, like I said, he wasn't all bad, Lot, but he keeps making these really bad decisions. Uh, so, so in effect... Um, and we just talked about this recently in, in Romans. We looked at it not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lot had been conformed to the world. And, and when Sodom lost the war, um, Lot was condemned with the world. And he was condemned by being picked up with all his family and stuff. And off they went. They were now captives uh, of these four kings. So uh, we get into verse 13. Someone escaped from that mess. Uh, you know they didn't get them all and he came and told Abram I like um, I like the way Abram was called it's Abram the Hebrew I kinda like that and these other three guys these other um, sort of uh, people who were probably similar to him only not uh, Jewish not obviously they, they weren't he was um, he was called you know Abram the Hebrew he had had some sort of alliance with these other shepherds or whatever that were around him but um, they had remained uninvolved in the situation but they had to know what was happening but they had just chosen to stay out of it so Abram's Abram separated from that but he's not isolated he's he's independent so he's not involved in that mess but not indifferent and uh, with some of those local sheiks he had formed this alliance uh, that that probably for just such situations like this these four guys had uh, had some sort of alliance and um, they were sitting there when they got this news and when Abram heard that Lot had been taken captive, that's what got him involved in the process. You'll have to know. So Abram's basically, you know, he's a man of peace. He's ready if something comes his way, but he's not looking for a fight. And uh, the only reason he decides to finally get involved in this is because Lot had been um, taken captive. So he, he's not fighting for selfish reasons or for personal gain. He, he fights because um, he loves Lot's. He loves Lot and he wants to help him couple of interesting things about verse 14 um, about Abram's men um, they were armed I, I like that um, you, you know it takes more than zeal and courage to win a war you, you have to have effective equipment and um, it, it, you know there's a lot of times in in the history of Israel where the people are not properly armed and it's a huge situation for them um, um, because they're not prepared to deal with the armies that are around them and without um, there are times in the you'll see as we keep moving forward where initially in those battles um, God fights for them because they're not armed but over time they're expected to be and they sometimes don't stay with the program and um, when we when we get into the life of Saul and uh, Jonathan when they start going to war uh, against the Philistines only Saul and Jonathan have swords. The rest of the group is without a sword. How about I mean, think about it? Without weapons to fight, because the the enemies that have overcome them at that point have taken away all their blacksmiths. Pretty smart, really. Um, so they they don't have any. They have no way to make swords. Uh, they have nobody to take care of their swords. They have nobody. And they're not allowed to, and so they they use whatever iron they have for for you know farming and stuff pretty good way to keep a, a whole group at bay anyway 
But these guys are armed. And I, I, I was just thinking of how important that was. You know, when, when you can, you sort of relate some of these to life today, um, that we're, as believers, we're all engaged in a spiritual battle. And um, we've been given effective equipment um, in the armor of God, but we need to be aware of it. We need to apply it to our lives. And uh, so if you don't know about the armor of God, you need to look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. But, you know, we have, a, we have a belt of truth, and we have a breastplate of righteousness, and we have a helmet of salvation, and we have shoes of peace, and we have a sort of a spirit, and, and uh, uh, you know, we have, some, we have some good stuff. But we need to be applying it to our lives and using it to be effective in our battle. And these, these weapons that we have, the Bible says, are spiritual. They're not carnal. Um, and we're to use them under the operation and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that... Uh, Really, in, in this battle, our most effective weapons are the Bible, the Word of God, and prayer. Uh, and um, these are all sort of contained in the armor of God that we have. But just like Abraham walked, these are all part of our walk of faith. Another thing about these guys that we learned from verse 14 is that they were trained. So, so not only were they equipped um, with the, the, the equipment they needed, they were trained. And again, this is another very important part of our, 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 our own spiritual battle. Um, we're to be prepared. We're, we're to be aware. Um, and, and really, it's, it's one of the things that the local church is supposed to be doing, is, is helping everybody be trained for the life that we live, for the battle that we're engaged in, and to be aware that it happens, and to teach you, um, you know, your Bible and how to know it better and how to study it and to encourage you to do that and how all these things work together and how we're supposed to you know live and all that stuff is important and so that's part of what we do especially you know on nights night to light we like tonight we come together and we learn those things and we encourage one another and we fellowship um, all of these things are important so Abrams guys are ready 318 guys and I don't know if you think that's a big number or not but that was the number 318 guys I wonder how many guys the kings have, um, but, but 318. Now that may not be including the guys that are going to go with him, the other, the other three sheiks, the local sheiks, probably have their own guys too, and, and they're going to join Abram in this whole deal for the sake of this alliance they have with Abram. So these guys go after the kings, and, and uh, they are such an uh, incredible force. Um, that they completely rout the enemy. They chase them for a hundred miles. These guys just take off. Um, they free all the captives and they recover all the spoils. So, complete victory. They get it all back. Every bit of it. They get, they get it all back and they chase these guys out and there you go. So, we see, um, you know, Abram successful in this battle and, and um, this man of faith, also a mighty warrior. After the battle, so we start to move into these last verses in Genesis. An interesting thing happens. So, Abram comes back, and he's been in charge of this battle. So, so in effect, now you have to realize that um, every, all the spoils now are, are effectively his, and these guys that he's gone with. They, they, they went out and won them. So, the guys who lost them have no claim over them any longer, in effect. And uh, Abram's aware of this. That's a pretty standard thing back at the time. So he's met when he returns from, uh, by two kings. He's met by the king of Sodom, and he's met by the king of Salem. And uh, the king of Sodom, 
uh, offers to Abram all of the spoils, which weren't even his anyway, but he offers to him all the spoils as long as he gets the people back. Melchizedek, though, comes to um, Abram and offers him bread and wine. So I, I hope you're making some connections with some of the things that we know. And, and uh, Abram um, rejects uh, the king of Sodom's offer, but he accepts the bread and the wine from Melchizedek. And to Melchizedek, the Melchizedek, he gives a tenth or a tithe of all the spoils. And, and um, very symbolic what's happening here, and there's some, some pretty interesting spiritual truths that are taking place. So when Abram comes back from this battle, uh, he has to choose between two kings who represent two completely different ways of life. Sodom, a wicked city, we know that. Um, they represent the, the sort of dominion of this world system and its appeal to the flesh. And it, uh, that, the name Bira, who's the king, it means gift. And, and it's sort of like uh, the, the idea is that the, the world bargains for your allegiance. But at the same time, Sodom, it, it, it means burning. So uh, you've got to be careful how you choose. Because what happens is that if you, if, you, if you bow down to Bira and the gift that is offered to you, everything that you live for will burn up one day. And um, guess who's going to have that happen? Lot. The whole deal. Gone. Burns up. Melchizedek, on the other hand, means um, righteousness, and Salem means peace. Now, this, this is significant in the process, because in Hebrews 7 and in Psalm 110, um, both of these connect Melchizedek with Jesus who's known as the king of peace and the king of righteousness so um, Mel Melchizedek in Abram's day um, is, is symbolic if you would of Jesus as our king and priest um, today who enables us to enjoy righteousness and peace and certainly um, it's not a coincidence that bread and wine is what's symbolic here and we see that in our own understanding of all that, that Jesus has done as we remember him um, as a picture of the Lord's death for us on the cross and his de defeating death and his resurrection and so in effect when Abram says no to Bera the king of Sodom and yes to Melchizedek he's, 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 it's a statement of faith saying you know uh, take the world give me Jesus and uh, Lot should have made the same decision and he won't in the process so it's not a decision that Abram could make for Lot. Lot, having been rescued and saved once again, should have chosen as Abram does, but he doesn't. Also, Abram doesn't um, impose these convictions on the guys who went with him, his allies, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Um, if they want to take part of the spoils, that's their business. He wouldn't criticize them in the process. But he does take it. And, and, you know, again, the, the world's trying to offer to Abram something that he already, is already his by right. This is the tricks of the world. And um, Abram says, you know what, I, I don't want anything that comes from you because I, I never want you to be able to say that, that, that you had anything to do with what I've got. Everything that I have comes from God. It's all about him. And that's the way it's going to stay. So that's what happens in that whole process. Now, the, the last thing to talk about, just briefly, because we covered and we talked about him in our study in the New Testament, Melchizedek, interesting guy. Uh, because in the Old Testament here, um, he's, he's really only talked about uh, here in this verse and in uh, one other verse in the Psalms. And that's it. Um, 
And yet, when the writer of Hebrews is trying to talk about the importance of Jesus as the great high priest and a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, um, the, the one that we were waiting for, the once and for all priesthood, he reaches way back into history and pulls out Melchizedek, uh, who, who really um, is interesting because uh, Melchizedek was a man. Let's make sure we know that. So he had a mother and father. But what he doesn't have for a king is any genealogy whatsoever. There's no record of where he came from, how he got there, and, and there's also no recorded instrument of um, how he left the scene, if you would. So, so what he appears, from the way they're used to looking at things, is someone who came out of nowhere and, and they have no idea how he ended up. And so, um, um, you know, understand that's how he appears because there's nothing recorded about him. But, but he, he wasn't an angel or some superhuman creature. Um, nor, nor do I believe was he a theophany of Jesus, uh, an Old Testament period of Christ. He was a real man, a real king, a real priest in a real city. But as far as the records are concerned, um, he wasn't born and he didn't die. And, and so in that way, he's a picture of Jesus. Um, but, but remember, Melchizedek was a real man. And, and not that Jesus wasn't, but Jesus came on the scene in a miraculous way, fully man, fully God, and, and died in a miraculous way and defeated death in a miraculous way. All those things happened. Um, because, you know, Calvary wasn't the end for Jesus. He rose again, defeated death, and he lives. Uh, and he continues to live. And so, um, this picture of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, you see, is just that, because of, of no recorded beginning or ending, the, the writer of Hebrews pulls back and looks at him as the sort of uh, understanding of what this whole process looks like um, with Jesus as the great priest and a, and, a, and a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood which the Jews had up till that point in time. So um, those are the sort of the main points of Genesis 14. A lot of neat stuff. I like to think about some of those things though and, and have you think about them and see the picture of the importance of the choices that we make how the world, you know, tempts us with, uh, with things, but our allegiance to the world doesn't end well. Uh, and um, how God always has something better for us. And, and so we want to keep our focus on Him and be people that, that, you know, are people of faith, not sight. Lot, lots the picture of doing it the other way. So uh, that's plenty for tonight. Um, if you're watching on the video, thank you for doing that. Love to see you here at some point soon, but we'll call it an evening right there.